So we're looking at verse 5, really, where Jesus states something that's obvious. Uh, and yet, perhaps, if we're honest, it's an overlooked statement about our Christian living. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. In fact, this beatitude, along with the first three that we've already looked at, marks a, a demarcation uh, from the final four, uh, which begins with verse 6 that we look at uh, shortly. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The first four relate very much to our relationship with God, a kind of a vertical thing, while the last four have to do with our response to others. Because they express, these last four in particular, express how the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be lived out in practice. And you know, uh, many of us as Christians, we're very good at the theory. We know the Bible verses, we know the passages, we know the scriptures. But uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road, it's living out what we know to be the truth of God's word. So the first thing we need to establish is how this particular beatitude in verse 5 concerning righteousness, how does it fit in with the other ones that have gone before it? Well, notice first of all, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. We, we talked about the fact that that means those who, are, who realize their moral bankruptcy or the recognition that without God we're destitute of any righteous thing. Uh, even our righteousness is like as filthy rags, the Bible says, what we, our own righteousness. It's the recognition that when you've added up all the pluses in your life, compared to the righteousness of God, they amount to zero. Uh, and then that's followed in the next beatitude with blessed are they that mourn. And this is the response to that recognition. Here's the sorrow that should overcome us uh, about this. As the old song says, with sorrow for sin doth repentance begin. And as we come to this realization and become sensitive to sin, it then works its way out, or it should, in our lives as meekness, amongst other things. And we looked at that last week, didn't we? When we see our sin and we're broken and we mourn, whether it's for the first time when we come to Christ, or whether it's as we live out our Christian lives and we're not always trusting and obeying, and, and we're sometimes sinning in a very obvious way, it should bring sorrow to our hearts. It should break us. And we should mourn. And then we should take a place of meekness before God and seek him afresh. And say, Lord, we're sorry. Did it again. Help me. In our meekness before God, we realize that the only hope we have of ever knowing his righteousness is to seek it from him and from his hand. And we've just sung, haven't we? Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you. There is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. I suppose every one of us, every person, I suppose, likes to pursue happiness. You know, being happy, feeling happy. But people don't always find it because, you know, they define happiness in, in a wrong way. Happiness is money, some people say. Happiness is pleasure. Happiness is having material things. But in the Beatitudes that we've been looking at and will continue to look at into the new year, living the right side up in an upside down world, Jesus says happiness is brokenness, mourning. Happiness is meekness. And happiness is hungering 
and thirsting after righteousness. That's what the word blessed means. Not so much happiness, but, but joy. It's a joy to live for Jesus. And when we live for him and we're trusting and obeying him as we sang earlier, then we attract, as Max Lucado says, and we've said it before, we attract that applause of heaven. God says, well done. Well done. You're doing great. And so he says, happiness, blessedness is hungering and thirsting after, after righteousness. And notice the response to each of those beatitudes. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be filled. Hallelujah. That's his promise. So that's why this beatitude fits right here because it makes sense in the spiritual progression of our lives. You can take a person broken over sin, meek before a holy God, knowing they have nothing that they can do to gain God's forgiveness or inherit eternal life in themselves, but who then reaches out in a hunger and a thirst for that which only God can give. And Jesus says, when you do that, guaranteed, you'll be filled. You'll be filled. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great uh, theologian, preacher, he said this beatitude again follows logically from the previous ones. It's a statement to which all the others lead. It's the logical conclusion to which they come. And it's something for which we should all be profoundly thankful and grateful to God for. I don't know of a better test that anyone can apply to themselves in this whole matter of the Christian profession of faith than a verse like this. If this verse is one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture to you, you can be quite certain you're a Christian. But if not, then you'd better examine the foundations of your faith afresh. See where you stand before God. There, there's a common expression, I don't know if you've heard it, that says, you are what you eat. Have you heard that? You are what you eat. Take a look at that picture. You are what you eat. It's, uh, and it's not good news for most of us, especially those of us who love chocolate or sweet things or Krispy Kreme donuts, for example. But it's true. Nutritionists tell us our appetite determines our diet and our diet determines our intake and our intake determines our health. Did you know that every 35 days your skin replaces itself? I didn't know that. Did you know that? In yeah? In 35 days, I'm going to check. <laughs> and, and, and I've heard this, that every month or so, your liver renews itself. That's, that's an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing. And all the time, your body is making new cells from the food that you eat. So what you eat, literally, becomes you. You are what you eat. And, and, you know, this principle also applies in, in, in the spiritual realm as well. So Jesus challenges us to look at our spiritual appetite with the penetrating words of this fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And in this simple, simple sentence, Jesus tells, tells us that our spiritual hunger will determine our spiritual health. And you know, Jesus is a master storyteller, and you know that. And so he uses, uh, his use of hungering and thirsting is a good illustration. Because as water and food is necessary to the body, so righteousness is necessary to the spiritual life. We naturally hunger and thirst, don't we? Not only for food, but for satisfaction in life. 
And, and we sometimes say when somebody achieves something, we say they were hungry for it. They were hungry for it. They wanted it. And so, you know, we search in all kinds of different areas to be filled, to be satisfied. But, you know, if, if it's outside of Christ, that satisfaction falls far short. We end up falling short. Uh, and, you know, we fool around with so many things that don't satisfy because th the reason is we're far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. One of the tragedies of our time is that so many people are wasting their lives chasing after things that can never satisfy. And all the while, the joy that is being offered to us, the peace that's being offered to us, the satisfaction that's offered to us in Christ is available. If we would only grab hold of Jesus and his righteousness, which brings true contentment and satisfaction. Romans 1 and 18 tells us that part of the unrighteousness of men, Paul says, is that they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image uh, in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, we've tried to put other things in God's place. And exchange the true God for idols. Put other people sometimes, other things in his place. But all we find when we look for satisfaction outside of God is a never-ending quest that's frustrating. Because only God can satisfy us. There's an old hymn, uh, I think I might have quoted it before, that says, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. And even as I stooped to drink, they, they fled and they mocked me as I wailed. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee. But while I passed my Savior by, his love laid hold on me. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Amen. Did you hear what I said? Do you hear what the hymn writer said? There's love, there's life, there's lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in in thee. Perhaps the greatest illustration of this is the story, you know it well, I'm not going to read it to you, but you, you know the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Uh, he took the inheritance that his father uh, had for him. He demanded it, in fact, uh, which was unusual because you don't usually inherit something till that person dies, but he wanted it ahead of time. He left home, he went to a far country where he squandered his inheritance, his money on riotous living on things that couldn't really satisfy. And he was far too easily pleased and fooled into thinking that that was what life was all about, only to fall short. And when he had a lot of money, oh, he had a lot of friends and a lot of parties to go to. But when the money was gone, so were his friends. And so he begins to sort of go downhill to the point of living with the pigs, the swine, and eating the slop that they ate. John Nelson Darby was an 18th century uh, Anglo-Irish Bible teacher. He was born in England, but he was educated in Trinity College, Dublin. And he was one of the influential figures amongst the original Plymouth Brethren. And he said this concerning the prodigal son, to be hungry is not enough. I must really be starving to know what is in God's heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks. But when he was starving, he turned and went to his father. And so in this beatitude, Jesus isn't talking about simple hunger, but about starving after righteousness. And probably, and I'm making a guess here, I think an educated guess, but probably most of us have never known real hunger. To us, <laughs> hunger means waiting 
Ten extra minutes for the freshly baked buns to come out of the oven. Can't wait. Can smell them. I'm hungry. Or that sensation you know in your stomach that makes you stop at McDonald's for fries and a Coke. And uh, even though you've had something to eat maybe a few hours before. Few of us really know or have ever known starvation. Oh, we've seen pictures. We've, we've heard stories on television about starving children and all the rest of it. But the truth is most of us will have plenty to eat and more during the Christmas season and New Year season. We'll probably throw out more than we eat. We're the best fed people on the face of the earth. And our problem isn't finding something to eat. It's losing the fat that comes from eating too much. Amen. Say amen. Now you know what it is. That's the problem for us in trying to understand this beatitude. Because we rarely hunger and thirst after anything. And, and so we miss the urgency of, of, of these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Now consider the words of Proverbs 16.26. It says, the laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. And I think the real problem is that many of us suffer from a kind of spiritual malnutrition. We're too easily satisfied with the spiritual junk food that's taught in many places these days, especially on TV. And our spiritual lives become lazy and they become lethargic. And, and, and I would imagine, ladies, uh, they're here tonight, you've probably had the, the experience of spending several hours preparing a nice meal only to discover that no one's really hungry when it comes to eating that meal. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what probably happened. Someone found the biscuits and the crisps and ate them before their dinner, ruining their appetite. And it's both interesting and, and, and sad to note how modern Christianity seems to have no, no real concern for righteous living or holiness. Righteous living appears to be inconsequential these days. People think that they're Christians or at least that they serve the Lord while their desires are for any and everything else but for godliness and for righteousness. Their desire for God is maybe at best a mild curiosity but not a raging hunger or a craving thirst. But you know a mild interest in the things of God is not what Jesus is calling for here. If we want to understand this fourth beatitude, uh, we need to discern what Jesus means by the term righteousness. You know, this word occurs only, only uh, once in the other four Gospels. But it occurs seven times in Matthew's Gospel, including five times here in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's important. This teaching to his disciples obviously carries importance. We know it has something to do with, with, with being right and with doing right, but, but that's about it, isn't it? That, that's about all we know, or we think we know. But if you come to a term in the Bible that, that you don't understand, you know, it's always helpful to look at other passages of Scripture that might be able to shed some light on it. So I want to look briefly, uh, before we sing again, at, at four other uses of this word righteousness that are in the Sermon on the Mount to get an understanding about what it means to pursue righteousness. In Matthew 5 and 10, in the, the eighth and the final beatitude, Jesus said, blessed are those that are persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, we're to hunger and thirst after a kind of life before God that will cause some people even to persecute us for our faith. 
And I believe that day is going to come. It's already happening in other parts of the world. And so we can discern that righteousness is a lifestyle that distinguishes us as true followers of Jesus Christ and that may invite, in fact it probably will invite, opposition from the world. You probably get it in a small way, maybe, as a Christian within your family. Oh, you believe all that? No, I don't believe that. That's all rubbish. What do you believe that for? And stuff like that. But there's, but there's more severe stuff coming if we're to live out the righteousness God wants us to live out. And then the second use comes in Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, you see, had concocted a religious system built around attendance at the temple and it involved intricate rules and regulations and it meant following certain traditions without question. It was a very professional sort of system and very routine. And you'll pardon me for saying this, but it was like wearing cheap perfume that you splash to make yourself smell good. But it's not really part of you and it can't really cover the, the odour it's underneath. You know what I'm talking about. Whereas true righteousness starts in the heart and it changes a person from the inside out. It's not legalism in that sense, like the Pharisees. And then the third use of the words, Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. To be seen of them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. The Pharisees loved they loved to pray in public and, and loudly. They loved people to see who they were. They loved to dress up in their religious clothes and throw their offering in a metal container outside the temple so that people could hear the coins rattling and say, oh, look, look what he's given. Oh, listen to that. Their religion was built around the praise of men, but it was a sort of a cotton candy religion. It looked good, but there wasn't any substance there. It was like old Mother Hubbard's cupboard. It was empty. And by contrast, true disciples seek a righteousness that doesn't need to be seen by other people, but only by God. And then the fourth use of the word, Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And of course, this touches, doesn't it, the priorities of life. What is it that you're seeking in life? Is it popularity? You're trying to be popular at school or at work or wherever you are? Is it fortune? Is it a career advancement? Is it a good salary? Is it a secure future, a happy retirement, a, a marriage partner? The fulfillment of your dreams? What is it? As good as those things may be, they aren't the most important things in life. We're called to put God's kingdom and his righteousness first in our lives. And when we do everything else that we need, God will see to it that, 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 that they'll be given to us. Seeking his righteousness means letting his word and our submission to it, like we sang earlier, to trust and obey, set the standard for our lives and for our living. And so when you put all those passages together, what do you have? We're to hunger and thirst after a truly Christian lifestyle that changes us from the inside out so that we no longer seek the praise of men, but it causes us to seek God's approval in all that we are and in all that we do above everything else. And the good news is that this kind of life is possible 
for all of us. Jesus plainly says that anyone who lives this way is going to be blessed by God. The final part of the verse is a promise from God. They will be filled. Filled with what? Food? No. Money? No. Don't listen to those prosperity gospel preachers. Long life? Not necessarily. Promotion? No. Happiness? Maybe not. A perfect family? Probably not. A trouble-free life? No, you could all testify to that. No, we'll be filled with righteousness. If you want the righteousness of God, you can have it. And, and so before we just take a break for a moment and sing another short song, let me, let me go out on a limb here and make a bold statement to you tonight. Whatever you want in the spiritual realm, you can have it if you want it badly enough. If you're hungering and thirsting for it. So let me ask you, how's your spiritual hunger? What are you spiritually hungering and thirsting for these days? And the scary truth is, listen, most of us here tonight are about, are about as close to God now as we want to be. For the most part, you are where you are right now because that's where you want to be. If you are hungry for something better from God, you would have it. If you want to, you can grow more spiritually mature. If you want it, you can have a closer work walk with God. If you want it, you can have a better marriage. If you, if you want to, you can change deeply ingrained habits that are breaking your heart and maybe breaking somebody else's heart. And you can break destructive patterns of behavior. You can. Jesus has promised that. If we seek after him and his righteousness. And when you hunger and thirst after righteousness... When you want what God wants more than anything in the world, you'll have it. And I close with this final thought. Jesus' appeal is always personal. He never says, come and join the church. Come and be baptized. Come and give money. He simply says, come unto me. Hunger and thirst for me. And when Jesus says, you'll be filled, he means you'll be filled with himself. If you're hungry, come and eat of the bread of life. If you're thirsty, come and drink of the water of life. If you're weary and heavy laden, come and find rest from him. If you're guilty, come and be forgiven. If you're far from God, come back home again, like the prodigal son did. And by the way, you know this too, that uh, a loss of appetite is a sign of illness, isn't it? Usually, or can be. Physically, we know something is wrong when we have no desire to eat. And the same is true spiritually. When we no longer hunger and thirst for uh, time alone with God through his word and through prayer, or we aren't committed to the worship of God, or we fail to get alarmed over our sinful condition and the sin of the world, these are all symptoms of spiritual sickness and spiritual malnutrition. In the kingdom of God, everything, including salvation, begins with a hungry heart. St. Augustine explained both the problem and the solution when he said, Oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. You'll never be happy until you put God first in your life. And you can never do that until you surrender your life to Jesus Christ once and for all. And there's also an important message to all believers here tonight. In one sense, it's easy for us to see that we're, we're filled and satisfied when we accept the free gift of salvation. Too often, that's where the hungering and the thirsting stops. 
And yet hungering and thirsting is a continual thing. You know, every day I get hungry around 11 o'clock, around 11 a.m. Mid-morning, my stomach starts to growl if I don't get something to eat. And it's a daily pattern, isn't it, that we all go through because our body needs food and it's the same with thirst. And the character of God's people is that they long so much for a godly life and relationship with God as much as a starving person longs for his next meal or a parched tongue for drops of water. We're called to live lives of righteousness, of holiness to our God. And you know, Luke in his gospel in a parallel passage about these words that Jesus spoke, he adds the words now, the word now. Blessed are they who are hungering now. It's a present continuous thing. Hungering and thirsting after God is a moment by moment way of life. And when you become a Christian, you don't stop, or at least you shouldn't stop, hungering and thirsting after God's righteousness.